on water reside in the realm of mythology. What you are is a follower of Eusebius. It's in the gospel. A reading from a travel diary from the end of the second century. To Caesar Augustus, greetings. After sailing to the renowned Alexandria with lots of money, I studied with the most accomplished scholars, and I went around the libraries seeking medical materials. When I found a certain book of Nehepso that dealt with 24 medical treatments of the whole body according to the signs of the zodiac, I was astounded by the incredible nature of its promised cures, but it seemed like an empty delusion of royal foolishness. Because even though I did prepare the solar medicine that had amazed me and all the other prescriptions I found in the book, I failed to ever effect a cure. So I wandered around Egypt, driven by a sting in my soul. I arrived in Diospolis, the most ancient city of Egypt, which has many temples, and lived there with the scholarly high priests and elders. I asked them whether any magical power could save a person from illness. They protested against my rashness. Only one man listened, a high priest who could perceive divine visions in a dish of water. I told him that the power of my soul was in his hands because I needed to speak with a god or else commit suicide. He asked me who I wanted to speak with. I answered, Asclepios, and I asked him to let me speak with a god alone. He agreed, but as his facial expression showed, he didn't do this gladly. He put me in an underground room, led me through the god's secret names, and shut the door as he left. Once I sat down, I was released from body and soul by the incredible nature of the spectacle. The facial features of Asclepios can't be expressed clearly in human speech. Reaching out his right hand, Asclepios said, You have attained honor in the presence of the god, and men will worship you as a god when time passes and your success becomes known. Ask freely about what you want, and I will grant you everything. That was a reading from Pseudo Thessalos of Tralles. File that one under asclepiosfanfiction.txt. That was based on a translation by Philip A. Harland. It's been some time since we've discussed something from second century pagan culture on this show. This is a second century forgery that has been written to appear as if it were from the first century. Sound familiar? But if we didn't know that, we would have to accept that this author, a doctor from the time of the Emperor Nero, actually it was Nero's court doctor, that he wrote this Mary Sue story about finding a Necronomicon, you know, Book of Nehepso, who was a legendary astrologer, and that the god of medicine himself not only revealed to him all the secrets of this book, but also promised him that he would become so famous that he would be worshipped as a god. I mean, why not? Now we have attestation of the historical man's existence, Thessalos of Tralles, from some first-century contemporaries, for example, Pliny the Elder. But this travel narrative about the meeting with the god of medicine in Egypt was demonstrated by a scholar named Ellen Scott in 1991 to be a forgery from the late 100s. He pointed out all the many inconsistencies and impossibilities 
and he concludes that whoever forged this book had learned about Thessalos from the writings of the famous second-century physician named Galen, because Galen mentions Thessalos when he says that Thessalos wrote a medical book and dedicated it to the Emperor Nero. And when that forger read those words, it activated him like a terrorist sleeper cell or literary operation Gladio. He seems to have thought, hmm, Galen mentions this interesting book. Uh, it doesn't seem to exist anymore. But wouldn't it be great if it did? I wonder if there's anything I can do to make that happen. In the book Forgers and Critics by Anthony Grafton, we are reminded that part of one's education in the ancient world was to imitate the style of the classics and to produce one's own versions of them. Like if you could make your poem sound exactly like Virgil, you would get an A, or I guess you get an Alpha. Another thing he tells us is that the big libraries would aggressively seek out books that they didn't have. You know, like in our time, some people's dream job is to work as a buyer for a fashionable store. Well, back in those days, they probably would have been buyers for a prominent library. Added to which, the different libraries were trying to compete with one another. Like the library of Shelbyville-opolis needs to have more rare books than that of Springfield-opolis, so they're willing to pay more. And back then, the only way to combat forgery was to write books complaining about it. The notion of intellectual property in the Hellenistic world was as embryonic as can be. So all they could do was come out with these like angry, sarcastic guides and catalogs that would list whatever was, in their opinion, a forgery. Basically, if you were trying to program a simulation that was designed to maximize forgery, it would look exactly like the Hellenistic world. I mentioned, too, that this was a forged medical treatise, and medical writings in particular, including letters by famous physicians, were huge targets for forgery in the second century. So this person read Galen. He saw that Galen mentioned a book from the past, and he went and wrote that book himself sometime in the late second century. The real book was supposed to be from the 60s AD. But notice how the forger in doing this apparently did not care at all whether the real book actually existed. Like he had to have at least suspected that it might have still been around, and for all we know, it was still around. But he went ahead with it anyway. First of all, there was likely material gain involved, but what about risk? I mean, wasn't he afraid of exposure? Well, in the rare event that some old codger with a cane shows up and happens to have the real book by Thessalos and insists that this copy with the Asclepio story is forged, well, the forger can just declare the exact same thing about his opponent's book and there'd be no way to check. It's my word against yours. All this to say, here we have one example among very many of the casual, breezy attitude taken towards forgery in this period. Now, of course, the entire premise of this show is that the Christian texts are second-century documents ascribed to first-century figures. But I'm not bringing this up today to demonstrate an analogy to the New Testament. I have another forgery in mind. Tertullian, the Christian writer from the early 3rd century, makes an offhand comment in one of his books, a tiny, innocuous statement that is nonetheless a mortal threat to born in the 2nd century and everything it stands for, if it is true. He says that a hundred years before him, Pliny the Younger exchanged some letters with the Emperor Trajan back when Pliny was governor of a province, and these letters were about how Christians should be dealt with. And we supposedly find these letters today. There are two of them in Book 10 of Pliny's letters. It's his letter to Trajan and the response. On this show, I call it the Pliny letter, um, with both his letter and the response being covered by that name. 
And what these two dopes agreed on here was basically that to be a Christian is illegal, but suspected Christians shouldn't be sought out, and anonymous accusations won't be honored. But if an accused criminal is found also to be a Christian, then he should be punished for being a Christian. Okay? Now, I don't mean to be like an armchair, second-century advocatus, but uh, forgive me if I'm a little perplexed by all that. Also, I'm doing an episode about the Pliny letter at some point, so I won't go here into all the manifold impossibilities with it, like him not knowing about Christians and the laws about them, despite the fact that he'd basically been attorney general right before this. Uh, you know, the low-key Christian propaganda of the letter itself. But like I said, this is from book 10 of Pliny's letters the one book out of the ten that he did not publish. It was published on its own after his death. The first time it was actually published together with the other nine books was in the 5th century by a Christian. Before that, no one outside of Tertullian references this letter. A Christian named Sidonius Apollinaris from the 5th century did have access to Pliny's letters, but only the original nine books had no idea there was a book ten and therefore he didn't know about this letter. But he seems to have started like a Pliny trend within the circle of educated Christians of his time, and within a few decades of his death in the 5th century, this Book 10, the only one that mentions Christians, was miraculously rediscovered and published. Now, Tertullian appears to mention these letters in his defense of Christianity, and when he mentions them, it seems like they're entirely genuine from what he says about them. I mean, we're not given the impression that there's anything wrong with them, any reason to doubt them. Well, several paragraphs later, Tertullian also says this, Tiberius, in whose days the Christian name made its entry into the world, having received intelligence from Palestine of events which had clearly shown the truth of Christ's divinity, brought the matter before the Senate with his own decision in favor of Christ. The Senate because it hadn't given the approval itself, rejected his proposal. Um, so Tiberius introduced a bill to induct Jesus into the Roman pantheon. Okay. Um, a few sentences after that, he challenges his opponents to, quote, examine the letters of Marcus Aurelius, where they will find a statement that Marcus Aurelius made to the effect that the prayers of Christians saved his army from a drought. And later on, Tertullian will also say that Pontius Pilate became a Christian and wrote a whole big book report about Jesus and sent it to Tiberius and that that can be consulted as well. Um, no one now believes any of those things. Generations of even theologians have agreed that none of those things are real. But notice how casual and how confident he was bringing them up. He's like, remember that time when uh, they had a floor vote on whether Jesus was a god? And, and look what he says about the Marcus Aurelius thing. He says, go examine his letters. Justin Martyr does that kind of thing too. I call it the physical challenge. So Tertullian brought up the Senate voting on Jesus. He brought up the Marcus Aurelius rainmaker legend. He brought up the Pilate converting to Christianity. So Tertullian is 0 for 3 here. Now he brings up this Pliny letter with the same breezy confidence with those other things. Now, does anyone feel comfortable taking the odds that this Pliny letter is genuine? I mean, actually genuine and not simply extant as a Christian forgery in Tertullian's time? And if so, why? I mean, is this the one time out of four where Tertullian decided to cite something genuine? I mean, if Tertullian made a salad, 
and there was a 1% chance that that salad was poisonous, would we still want to eat that salad? Well, in this, in this case, there's a 75% chance that it's poisonous, maybe more. Now, of course, with the Pliny letter, we have what could be the letter that he's referring to. But at some point, we also had the Acts of Pontius Pilate, which is the document from which he got that Pilate being a Christian story from. And as we mentioned, the Book 10 of Pliny, where this letter is found, is kind of a black box when it comes to its provenance. It sounds actually like Tertullian has access to like a, a self-contained florilegium of pagan testimonies to Christianity. Like they all meet that theme and they all sound improbable, but almost in like an endearing way. And so with that in mind, I see really only two possibilities here. One is that in all four of these cases, Tertullian is referencing forged documents, including the Pliny letter, which was forged before his time and possibly compiled in this florilegium or compilation of pagan testimonies to Christianity. The other possibility is somewhat akin to what we saw in the reading. And in that version of the events, Tertullian is lying about the Pliny letter, or at best, he's basing what he says about it on secondhand testimony, and a later Christian, like a 5th century Christian, forged it based on these things that Tertullian said were in it. But either way, today's reading should leave us with the recognition that forgery was much easier than one would think. It was very prevalent in this period especially, and interpolations and forgeries, even lengthy and highly elaborate forgeries like we saw, were commonly made on even the slightest pretext imaginable. listening to Born in the Second Century, and it's now June 4th, 2021. This is episode nine of the once or twice monthly experience on the lateness of Christian origins, hosted by Chris Palmero. The music for today's broadcast was provided by the recording group Pompey Gray. They're quite good. I've added some more info on them to the episode description. I've been doing shows on the New Testament books. It's part of the New Testament journey. And from time to time, we deviate from that and speak on these topics more broadly. But this next thing is something that I never really wanted to get into, but I now feel that it's become necessary. Origen, when writing against Celsus, has found out that Celsus was an Epicurean. And he uses that a few times. He kind of lightly makes fun of him or chides him for being inconsistent. Like he'll point out a contradiction and he'll say like, hey man, I thought you were supposed to be an Epicurean but 95% of his book is trying to refute Celsus from the facts. But if an apologist were to write that same book today, the opponent being an Epicurean is all they would talk about. I mean, like, this guy's an Epicurean. I mean, what are you kidding? I mean, here's a list of what Epicureans believe, and this guy believes all that stuff, and he dares to criticize our faith. Um, and that's why I've avoided talking about myself too much, but recently I saw some feedback that suggested an anti-Christian or militant atheist motive on my part. I don't mention myself normally on here because I have a very specific vision in mind for this show, and one element of that is that it must be hyper-focused on the subject matter. And believe me when I say that I'm timing myself right now. 
So we can go back to that. But uh, I think it's very clear to any listener within five minutes that I don't believe in any religion, even remotely. But as for being anti-Christian or trying to produce anti-Christian content or harm Christianity, trust me when I say that there are a lot easier ways to do that than spend six hours a day, seven days a week with like three stacks of open books and two laptops open, you know, trying to make sense of some whack-ass text like uh, Eugnostos the Blessed or whatever that I don't even end up actually talking about on the show. There are a lot easier ways and a lot more obvious ways to go after Christianity, many of them involving TikTok. Like in my case, I could have easily done the kind of broad, quick-hit counter-apologetics But as difficult as it is for apologists to process this, I am interested in these writings for their own sake. But on the subject of religion, I am officially a member of the Catholic faith. In the the same way that Grandpa Simpson was a member of the the Elks and the Masons and the Communists and the Stonecutters. And, you know, he was reminded of that when he took out his wallet and he had all those membership cards. I, I mean, I don't believe in any of its doctrines, but, you know, I feel like I put in the work. Uh, I did confirmation and all that. I I had to go to church 10 times and get my little card stamped by a priest. You know, So in my view, I'm entitled to claim official membership in this organization in the same way that Grandpa was entitled to be a Mason. However, um, I am now technically excommunicated as an apostate under Canon 1364 of the Code of Canon Law because of what I just said a few seconds ago about not believing any of the Catholic Church's doctrines. So the Catholic Church would not agree with me that I I deserve to be called an official member. But regardless, I can envision a possible future for myself, you know, sitting in a church with the high vaulted ceiling and the stained glass windows and the organ music subtly playing and me saying, Father, I've sinned. I'm the creator and host of a show called Born in the Second Century, where the first words out of my mouth were, Jesus and the apostles were mythical figures. So please forgive me, but before you do, be sure to smash that like and subscribe button. I mean, like, what, does anyone think that he's not going to forgive me? I mean, just, you know, I'll say my 275,000 Hail Marys and just move on with my life. So to say that I'm anti-Christian is incorrect because I'm technically a Christian, and all the more so because, strictly speaking, uh, one cannot formally renounce Catholicism, which is actually something I learned uh, doing the research for this. But this is not, therefore, a fundamentalist gone sour story. I mean, I grew up in the northeastern U.S., and where I lived, Catholicism was just something that everyone kind of did. Like, you did church on Easter. Um, No one ever really talked about God or religion, like, outside of the physical church building. You know, some people would get upset uh, at using the Lord's name in vain, but that seemed to be more of, like, a matter of etiquette than of religion. And, and that setting has a high chance of producing someone like me, you know, someone who has been exposed to Christian texts, but has never really taken them seriously as like authoritative or sacred. It was never really taught to do so by adults, or at least not consistently. And, you know, the Catholic Church was not much help there either, because in an environment where independent appeal to scripture is discouraged, you know, you run the risk of people not viewing it as authoritative, or you run the risk of them seeing potentially any Christian writing as authoritative, like everything from the Bible all the way down to the, the diary of Catherine of Siena. And, and this is just one background among uh, many possible ones, as, as the listeners to this show can testify, uh, that might result in someone just naturally having an interest in early Christian text. You know, just like someone who becomes interested in the provenance of Shakespeare's plays. You know, to my knowledge, uh, no one who has ever questioned whether Shakespeare wrote those plays has ever been tagged as like anti-theater or anti-thespian and like, even in that case, say if you were for some reason militantly anti-theater, 
Like if you were an anti-theatricalist, which is a real thing, there are easier ways to criticize theater. I mean, if you're trying to harm it, than again, like beating your brains out over like the hyper marginalia of like the 16th century English art and literary scene. But I mean, these New Testament books are everywhere. They have such a huge cultural influence, yet you look more closely and they have these massive intractable problems that only like 0.1% of the population ever seems to bring up. But that's my background. And uh, in 2008, when I was kind of dabbling with Catholicism again, um, I first had the idea to do a New Testament podcast. I was inspired by a show called History of Rome and also Dan Carlin. And this would have been what I believed at the time, you know, a minimum Jesus a stripped-down view of Christian origins type thing. But over time, it became clear to me that, that that traditional origin story just doesn't line up. And I drifted into the more radical and alternative views because pr primarily it seemed like they were actually attempting to answer the questions that I had. And over time within that, uh, I would gravitate more towards some arguments and less towards others, and you know, specifically, and, and not to demean them, but I never really gravitated towards Robert Eisenman's theories about the links between Christianity and the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, never really gravitated towards finding the links between Paul and the Herodians, or like Jay Raskin's theories, which still put Christianity in an early time period, too early by my estimation. But anyone at all who would posit late dates for the New Testament, anything about pre-Christian Gnosticism, anything about the role of the church fathers in defining Christianity, I would read those things like I was reading The Meaning of Life, but I felt that there wasn't enough of that material out there. But then I read The Antiqua Mater, and not only was it based only on those types of arguments, but it was also elegant. It was like a bespoke radicalism, and I wanted to do something in that vein. So that was the actual genesis of the show, and if there's any motive bound up in that, it has nothing to do with new atheism or anti-Christianity, which really doesn't fit into that narrative at all. I mean, if anything, pure narcissism is a much more plausible motive than uh, anti-Christianity. And my timer's going off. Now for today's program. If I were someone who didn't agree that Christianity was born in the second century, if I were an opponent of this show, how would I argue against it? Like, what would my focus be? What would my arguments be? Now, I think the best way to do it would be on text-critical grounds. Make the case that the New Testament documents had to be written well before 150 in order to have all these variant readings later on, but even that is still subjective. I mean, as Jason Badoon pointed out, even 40 years is more than enough time for text variants to show up. But like, those are the colors that I would strike, you know, the argument from text criticism. But there are few theologians that would do that. Now, what would happen if you asked a theologian whether Christianity was born in the second century? What might they say? I mean, they'd say in so many words that it's not a mainstream view. They would focus a lot on the person who proposed it more so than what they actually proposed. When it comes to that kind of thing, they're quite effective. They can be very cutting, sometimes even in a humorous way, kind of a caustic wit when uh, dispensing with their opponents. And they become good at repeating the standard lines about how every scholar on the planet agrees on certain facts about the origins of Christianity. And that's the point at which most people are satisfied with the answer. All they need to hear is that the alternative view, like the second century origins, is not a mainstream view, that it's one not commonly held. But I would advise that person to stick around with the theologian, you know, after they get done with their tight five, and, and say to them, you know, well, those are the negative arguments about the other side's position, you know, but, but, but what are the positive arguments and evidence that you have for your position? What 
proof do you present that the beginnings of Christianity date to the 30s AD with the earthly ministry of Jesus and his followers? I mean, the actual answer to that question is, that's what the New Testament says. But for obvious reasons, they can't just say that. But as sure as I'm sitting here, I could recite just about every response they'd give you. You know, the picture provided by the Gospels, barring some legendary accretions, is remarkably consistent with the picture of first-century Judean society and religion with which we are familiar from the various sources, such as Josephus and the Qumran community. But, you know, that and everything else they say in that vein would be subjective. I mean, if you ask them for proof, they'll say a bunch of things. But they won't have the kind of proof that you mean, the kind that would justify an immediate dismissal of this hypothesis. You know, the kind of thing that you look to and say, okay, everyone would agree that this is unimpeachable evidence that Christianity began right around the time the New Testament says it did. I'll tell you what I mean. There's a fellow whom you can find online who seeks to prove that Christianity was created in the 4th century by Constantine. So he's born in the 4th century. He goes by the name of Mountain Man. And as some have pointed out, uh, there is somewhat of a silver bullet that really harms that theory. Because there was once a city in what's now Syria called Dura Europos. And for many an age, it was the eastern limit of the Roman state, you know, before the dark times, before the Sassanid Empire. In one of the many wars between the two powers, the frontier city of Dora was destroyed. So it was a city with a lifespan, you know, founded by Seleucus Nicator back in the heroic period and ended in 257 AD. And the site was never inhabited again. So one thing we can immediately say is that whatever we dig up from there, there's a roughly 100% chance that it comes from before 257 AD. And as it turns out, in the city's ruins, we found what is probably a Christian church, but more importantly, a gospel manuscript that has harmonized sentences from at least three New Testament gospels. And not only that, but it also has the nomina sacra, which were special abbreviations that were likely invented by Christian scribes. And that's significant because it implies not only that something resembling Christianity was around in the 250s AD, but also that it appears to have had a significant period of development even before that. And because this was all found in the archaeological strata of this ruined city in which everything must necessarily come from before 257 AD, then Christianity itself must ipso facto come from before 257 AD. That's well nigh unimpeachable. And that's what I mean by proof. This is the kind of thing that those calling for a first century origin for Christianity do not have. And they don't have a silver bullet like this to use against born in the second century either. Now, of course, when it comes to the mountain man theory, like you could bring up a lot of other evidence, including even more archaeological remains. But to this fellow's credit, um, he identifies all those objections himself, you know, tries to meet them head on. But it's hard to maintain in the face of all these things. Now, if I were to meet someone like E.P. Sanders or even a Burton Mack or even a Robert M. Price who would at least listen to an alternative theory, um, I would be unable to argue a fourth century origin for Christianity in good conscience. But when it comes to the second century, uh, I would feel no such reluctance. I would argue it boldly. Because unless we find manuscripts or grave sites or inscriptions which are indisputably from the first century, such as from a city destroyed in 100 A.D., for example— a second century origin for Christianity is clear for landing. Uh, we could put its origins all the way up to 130. Now, on the destroyed city, some might argue that evidence of Christianity was found in Pompeii, which was destroyed in 79. But that's a common misconception. There was not. 
So unless we find something like that, we're just constructing narratives out of sources. I mean, as Robert M. Price said, it's all mind games, no matter what side you're on. And because there's no such evidence of a first century origin, because it's all just based on constructing narratives out of sources, well, we can therefore rightly ask about the many strange things in those sources that an early origin doesn't explain. Like, just for example, why did the Gospel of Mark, the earliest known source for the life of Jesus, very deliberately change the day of Jesus' crucifixion from the day of preparation of the Passover to the day of the Passover itself? I mean, whatever Mark was using as a source, that source had Jesus dying on the day before Passover. You know, but then Mark came along and did like the, the George Lucas special edition, you know, like, I never liked the fact that Jesus died on the day before Passover. So now that I had this new technology, I finally went back and fixed it. Quick background on this. Like usually the theologians say that Mark, Matthew, and Luke have Jesus eating the Passover meal and dying after that on the day of Passover. And then they say that John, uh, the later, um, more symbolic, more mystical gospel, changed it to have Jesus die the day before, um, which is the same time as the Paschal Lamb, because, you know, John believes that Jesus is the Lamb of God. Remember, of course, that the Passover Lamb is slaughtered on the 14th of the month of Nisan. Well, Mark has Jesus eat the Passover meal that night and die on the next morning. But he has left in contradictory wording from his source, and he's like someone who forgot to take the tags off of their clothes. Because at the beginning of Mark 14, it is said in so many words to be the 13th of Nisan. And he then tells us that Jesus' enemies wanted to kill him before the festival. But immediately after he says that, he has Jesus eat a meal in someone's house where the woman anoints him for burial. And that would be on the night of Nisan 13. So the clear implication of the original story was that Jesus died the next morning, having been anointed the night before, and died at the same time the lambs were being slaughtered and the same day that John has him die. So John has not changed the story. He has actually remained faithful to the original source. Mark changed the story. And he awkwardly tries to cover it up with an abrupt segue as well at Mark 14, 12. Now you might ask, why did he not just delete everything that happened on Nisan 13 so there wouldn't be a contradiction? Well, he couldn't because he wanted to keep that damn uh, anointing for burial story. But that story also involved a meal. And he needs Jesus' last night on earth to be the meal of the Passover feast. And so the anointing and the Passover meal cannot occur at the same time. So he's, therefore, he still needs two meal stories. So we can imagine him kind of tearing his hair out over this. And he finally just decides, fuck it, I'll just jam these two meal stories right next to each other. Now, incidentally, Jesus in that anointing story says that what the woman did will always be proclaimed in memory of her. And that's been a thorny New Testament problem for a while now because Jesus actually does not say her name. Um, but here's an answer, right? Which is that that whole section came from some other document. And I think that Mark was actually showing some cruelty to the group who originated that story because like he's making it obvious that he could have used the woman's name, but he deliberately did not. But back to the Passover thing, uh, Matthew keeps that whole chronology of Mark, including the anointing story, but he tones it down slightly. Like he no longer says outright what day it was like Mark did, but Luke alters it entirely. He only says that the Passover was coming up. So like both of them are running interference for Mark in their own way. 
Now, not everyone even recognizes this or talks about it. And it was a big thing with uh, Alfred Loisy. But the fact is, Mark changed the story. Now, why? You know, because if Mark was written in 60 AD, did all the still living people who remembered the death of the historical Jesus not care to dispute this chronology? I mean, like Matthew, who tinkers around with a lot of Mark's stuff, he leaves that chronology intact. So he, for whatever reason, didn't see a problem with that. Whereas he raised objections about a bunch of other stuff in Mark. So could it be that, like us, Mark recognized that having Jesus die at the same time as the Paschal Lamb was a little too on the nose? And could it therefore be that Jesus' passion narrative is based on a symbolic story? And also, wouldn't we have to agree that if Mark saw fit to change that story, then it means that Mark was writing outside the living memory of anyone who would have been alive in 30 AD. And you know what? While we're on this subject, speaking of Passover, why does Jesus celebrate the post-70 AD Seder with his disciples? I mean, there are so many things like this where any one of them would be a nasty problem for the traditional story in and of itself, not something that can be explained away casually, certainly not something that can be explained away with evidence, other than what we may frankly call interpreting sources. And I have rules for myself on this show, six rules. Um, think back to episode five, where I said one of them was never mention Adam and Eve. But another one of them is never say interpret. So if I'm breaking that rule here, it must be an extraordinary occasion because I want to make clear that that is all the mainstream theologians are doing is interpreting. A New Testament professor who has published nine books on the historical Jesus is interpreting. Ben Witherington is interpreting. Um, Gerd Ludemann is interpreting, like we'll get to in a minute. You know, it's not like here in this bin, we have the indisputable evidence and the interpretations are just like extra. No, it, this whole thing is interpreting sources. So given that, what kind of proof might the theologians offer for their positions? Well, I want to highlight just one example that I feel is characteristic. There are three letters in the New Testament that pass under the name of John. And the mainstream view is that these are actual letters written by one actual person to another. But the alternative view, and which I share, is that they're literary creations that were like appendices or front matter for the Gospel of John. Now, I was reading the book Heretics uh, by Gerd Ludemann, whom I mentioned, and he says that Second John, um, the New Testament book, is a real letter from one person to another. And he scoffs at those who would call it a literary forgery. Now, what's the proof that he gives? We never believe this. His proof is, read it repeatedly and you will come to see that it's a personal letter. Just read it over and over. That's his proof. In fact, he says that that is the best counter argument to anyone who claims that it's a literary creation. I mean, like, what are we supposed to do with that? I mean, could you imagine this podcast if all I said was Galatians is a forgery? You know, just read it over and over again and you'll see what I mean. You know, like and subscribe. Join us next time. You know, this criticism has ended. Go in peace. Now, one could argue that you know, he's done technical monographs on that topic and he's explored all the technical reasons why that view is correct. And it's like that, that doesn't really matter because here he has the opportunity to communicate to the public in a book, um, you know, just like I have with this show. And he doesn't deploy any of that technical evidence. And you get other things, too, like a New Testament commentary that I read recently, uh, Raymond Brown. Uh, he says that Mark was written in the 60s because it had to be before Matthew and Matthew was written in the 80s. And we know that Matthew was written in the 80s because Ignatius quotes it in the year 110. Well, like almost every part of that statement is debatable because like even some in the mainstream would put Ignatius much later than 110. But from all this, 
we can't help but detect an almost dismissive attitude towards alternative views, almost as if the establishment is weary of a long conflict and just wants to declare that it's over. And you recall earlier we spoke about motive. Now, what would someone's motive be for becoming a commentator about Christianity? Well, New Testament scholarship has grown more and more conservative in these few generations. I recommend The End of Biblical Studies by Hector Avalos to learn more about that. And I don't understand why it's inappropriate to bring up the fact that many who oppose some of the alternative theories of Christian origins, they are motivated by a faith interest. And that's usually my first thought when one of them disputes with me. But for some reason, it's considered bad form to talk about it. But if they can assume an anti-theistic motive in play here, then it's only fair that their faith background should be considered as their possible motive for believing and defending the things that they do. And even setting faith aside, there are other possible motives for upholding the standard origin story of Christianity, the one that I gave in episode one in the Yokozuna segment. Because a major trend in our time is that of mainstream theologians positioning themselves as the public-facing Christianity experts over against the fundamentalists. They're locked in a perpetual war with the fundamentalists, just like those two dinosaurs in the Gobi Desert that were exhumed and, and you know, they were still locked together in combat. And, and what they're warring about is whose view of Christianity gets to become normative in the public eye. So that's the war that's always going on. It's like in the cosmic puppets, you know, the two giant gods staring each other down across that lake for all eternity. You know, many of them, they want to focus on writing and speaking against fundamentalism by informing the public on the real state of Jesus scholarship by writing articles like, you know, six reasons why the historical Jesus would have hated Chick-fil-A and like hopefully be invited on a show to talk about that. Now, that's not all they do. Of course, that's not the explanation for every single one of their beliefs. But I mention it because I think it is the actual reason why they don't really react to views like a mythical Jesus or a second century origin for Christianity, as you'd expect, which will just be like a cold, dispassionate refutation based on the facts. What we get from them instead is like vehemence and sustained aggression, because they perceive that they're being attacked unexpectedly on a part of their front that they were never really thinking that they had to defend at all. They had other concerns in mind. But at the end of all things, we all have to reckon with the fact that there are just too many indications that the Christian grand narrative is flawed. I mean, last time, we did a reading from Lord of the Rings. And to paraphrase again from that, pulling Christianity back into the first century leaves its early history thin and stretched, like butter scraped over too much bread. And so on today's episode, we're briefly stepping off the trail of our New Testament journey and introducing a new concept, a regular series. I hope to pick back up again soon with part three of the Galatians series, but Today we introduce the Temple of Time. And uh, that phrase, as some may recognize, is from a product that is owned by a highly litigious organization, so we won't be saying it too many times. And if we're not using it again next time, you can pretty much guess what happened. But uh, the concept here is to discuss a reading that seems to imply that Christianity arose in the first century, followed by a discussion of a reading that seems to imply that it arose in the second century. It's like seeing visions in a temple and having to decide which of them is true or false. And what this allows us to do is step back a bit and address some direct arguments for the date of Christian origin, rather than extrapolating them from within a New Testament text. Because not all the texts we're discussing 
have as much bearing on the date of Christianity as others do. And so this format allows us to isolate a statement or a reading and explore what implications it may have for when this religion came into being. So we'll begin today with a reading of Justin Martyr. And Justin will tell us that he can produce any number of Christians who have been Christians for 60 or 70 years. And of course, that implies an early date for Christianity. So we'll see whether it's a true conflict with our theory of late origins or whether there are alternative explanations. And there may not be, but this is something that you wouldn't see on any apologetics program, something that really strikes at the heart of their paradigm. And it's not just a straw man. Um, it is the standard of born in the second century that conflicting evidence will be directly considered. And in the second half, we will discuss the various parts of the Gospels that seem to imply that John the Baptist lived and died prior to the birth of Jesus. And this implies that the ministry of Jesus in the time of Pilate and his traveling career, one of the most secure facts that we can supposedly know about from the New Testament, is thrown utterly into question because it indicates that the placing of Jesus at the time of Pilate may have had sectarian motives. I want us to be asking today which position we would rather be in, believing that Christianity originated early, yet being confronted by possible evidence that it arose later, or believing that it arose later, but having possible evidence that it came earlier. Back after this. from the first apology by Justin Martyr, 156 AD. All who are twice married by human law and all who look upon a woman to lust after her are sinners in the eye of our master because he rejects not only the one who commits adultery but also the one who desires to commit adultery because not only our deeds but also our thoughts are open before God. And many, both men and women, who have been Christ's disciples from childhood remain pure at the age of 60 or 70 years, and I boast that I could produce such from every race of men. What shall I say, too, of the countless multitude of those who've reformed in temperate habits and learned these things? That was a reading from the first apology from the year 156, and uh, this is the first of our two visions in the Temple of Time. The writings of Justin Martyr come from a single manuscript, the Parisinus Graecus 450 from the medieval period. Um, there are a couple earlier fragments that we find here and there, but we mainly rely on this one manuscript. I mention this to say that we can't be sure whether the writings of Justin have been faithfully preserved. I mean, there are known interpolations in the text. Um, for example, in one of them, he orders the emperor to punish anyone who claims to be a Christian but doesn't behave like a Christian. 
It's just weird, and it goes against everything he stands for, not to mention it sounds exactly like what a medieval monk would say, you know, like a monk that would be uh, copying this book in a monastery, for example. Justin Martyr is the earliest datable witness for Christianity. Now, in his apology book, he says that he's writing 150 years after the term of Quirinius as legate governor of Syria, and that term began in 6 AD. Justin also refers to the previous governor of Egypt, Lucius Munatius Felix, whom we know from secular sources to have finished his term in 154 AD. This book was also written during the reign of the emperor Antoninus, who died in 161, so we can triangulate the date of this thing pretty well, assuming that it's genuine, uh, which I do accept. Um, Christian authors begin alluding to Justin's books almost right away. He's a major source for them. And uh, we'll cover this at some point, but his role in actually creating Christianity uh, really needs to be explored further. But here's something else that's extremely important to remember about Justin. Every single Christian author after him mentions at least one predecessor, a Christian figure who existed and wrote before him, or at least they clearly possessed the writings of a predecessor. Justin Martyr is the only one who doesn't. He never even implies that any Christian wrote or taught before him in that post-apostolic age. His authorities are the Jewish scriptures, the memoirs of the apostles, and the book of Revelation. Everything he knows about Christianity that does not fall into any of those three categories, he vaguely says that it reached him by tradition, which he never explains what that means. So Justin is probably about as close to being the first official Christian as we can possibly get. And we who believe in the late origins of Christianity should be absolutely honeycombing these writings in the same way that Christians do with the Bible. Now, the book is called The First Apology. Uh, there is a second apology, but th there's always been some confusion as to whether it should really be called the second apology or whether the second apology is really part of the first apology. But for what it's worth, brother of the show Eusebius is of no help to us. He's clueless. Um, he says he's going to quote something from the first apology, like he explicitly calls it that. But then he proceeds to quote from what we know as the second apology. There's a Christian writer called John of Damascus writing much later, and he quotes something that he claims is from the fifth part of Justin's apology, but he then gives us a quote that is not found in either of the two apologies. So even though we accept Justin's writings as genuine, uh, you know, with stuff like this, uh, we probably need to put a little asterisk after that. Now, but this book is supposedly a defense of Christianity that is being addressed to the Roman emperor. But that is just a literary convention, because the true purpose of this apology, as with any apology, and this was a big genre in Christianity around and after this time, the true purpose is to prep Christians with talking points in case they get accosted by someone, not necessarily a Roman authority figure, possibly a religious rival who's challenging them or mocking them. Like the reason why you would frame something like this as a plea to the emperor and not just say release it as a guide, like, you know, like how to talk to your Hercules worshiping uncle at Thanksgiving is because writing it this way enables them to, one, uh, really highlight the hypocrisy of how the Roman state has tolerated or endorsed pretty much every belief system other than Christianity, and two, to give everyday Christians confidence when they're using these talking points or teaching them to others. I mean, like, here's Justin the philosopher risking his neck to defend our faith to the frickin' emperor, so, you know, don't be so worried about those Marcionite or Simonian Christians harassing you at the street corner. 
Um, these arguments will help you out against them too. And I mean, he tips his hand quite a few times in this. I mean, he gets carried away. Like he angrily orders the emperor to destroy a statue of Simon Magus. Um, he's passive aggressive throughout this entire thing, kind of needling the emperor, um, which is ironic because while there may have been no law against Christianity on the books in the empire, uh, there certainly was a Les Majestés law, uh, which he violates a million times. He literally says at one point, quote, I presume that you who aim at piety and philosophy won't do anything unreasonable. But if you, like fools, prefer tradition instead of truth, then do whatever you like. You know, it's like this cat is trying to earn that surname of martyr. Now, half the book is proof texting from the Jewish scriptures, of which Justin is a master. And uh, he says things like, you know, when Moses stretched out his hands, his body looked like the letter T. And so like that was a prediction of the cross of Christ. Now, the correspondence to the Roman emperors was read by staff before it was brought to his attention. And there was like a secretary who was in charge of everyone who handled the Greek correspondence to the emperor and uh, one who handled all the Latin correspondence. And there was a lot, like really a lot. And the people that would have received this apology in their inbox, if it was actually sent to the emperor, I mean, you ought to be aware, these guys were like masters of bureaucracy. I mean, to get to that level, they had to be like the Kwisaj Haderach of bureaucrats. Like they're the final boss. You know, they're like Mr. Burns flying the biplane in that game, Bart's Nightmare. And the minute they saw this book, they would put it directly in the trash. I mean, they're not going to read something that lists every instance of a T-shaped item from the Old Testament and explains how it's secretly a prediction of the cross of Christ. By the way, something notable. Justin brings in a lot of Jewish Bible quotes without really any fanfare. Now, he brings in some Jesus quotes too, but... He actually apologizes before doing it. Like this Christian, uh, this early Christian, feels the need to explain himself when he quotes sayings of Jesus that we see forms of them in the Gospels, but no explanation necessary whatsoever for these bogus readings of the Jewish scriptures. Now, could it be that the Jewish scriptures were actually more important to Christian origins in its earliest period than anything Jesus did or said? But he goes on and on. Um, the last part of the book, which I actually think he himself added at a later date, uh, he talks about baptism and church services. And it's like Christians already know that that stuff exists. They already know that the Eucharist exists. They don't need to be told about it uh, as if it's for the first time. The emperor and actually pretty much all Romans wouldn't care. Again, this is more talking points to help believers organize their thoughts if they get accosted. Like, what are you guys up to when you have your secret meetings? And, and they can give the correct answer. You know, they can say like, you know, well, first we uh, surround a naked person and, you know, practically drown them. Uh, then we slam down some wine, you know, eat some flesh, drink some blood. And we have a nice reading after that. Um, then we gorge ourselves on another feast. You know, on second thought, maybe it's better to keep the content of your Christian rituals under wraps now that I think about it. I don't believe sending this apology to the emperor would be a great idea after all. Now, how would we answer this um, if we believe that Christianity arose in the second century? And many both men and women who have been Christ's disciples from childhood remain pure at the age of 60 or 70 years. And I boast that I could produce such from every race of men. Well, the first and most immediate answer could be that Justin is lying. Um, if we focus in on what he says at the end, he says that he can find these older Christians and produce them from every race of men. And we find that that is a typical rhetorical device that we see a lot in Justin. I mean, he says, 
almost all the Samaritans worship Simon. Marcion has inspired men of every nation. Uh, he shows a lack of scruples elsewhere. Uh, he cites the spurious acts of Pontius Pilate. He famously says that the devil created the cults of Bacchus and Mithras and Asclepios ahead of time to kind of head Christianity off at the pass. He says Plato got all his ideas about God from Moses. He appends a fake letter from the Emperor Hadrian. So he's not the most trustworthy guy. And think about it. We don't even know him personally, never heard him speak. But we can fairly tag him as unscrupulous based strictly on a writing of his of a few thousand words. But generally speaking, anytime these authors start speaking in the first person, you ought to be cautious. When Irenaeus does that, for example, he then tells us about dead people being resurrected in the church in his time. So this answer to the objection is a straightforward one. I would call it the blunt response. The second answer we might give as to how this doesn't conflict with a second century origin for Christianity is that perhaps the statement is true as Justin and as these celibate people understand it. Note what Justin does not say in this passage. He does not say that these people were born Christians, but he says that they were disciples of Christ since childhood. Now, on that subject, Justin never mentions or implies that there are Christian children. Like, even in the passages where he condemns the Romans for infanticide. I mean, at one point, he says that the women and children domestics of the Christians are seized and interrogated. And if you remember the very first part of episode one, the reading from Celsus, where he said that Christians only get their converts by converting children at the washerwoman's shop, which implies that they're slave children. Um, we're getting a very similar picture here in Justin as well. Like, it is baffling that there seemed to be no born Christians ever mentioned before, like, the year 200. And Justin also tells a fictional story of his own conversion at the hands of an old man, but uh, very tellingly, the old man in that story never explains how or when he became a Christian, even though the subject of their entire conversation is why someone should convert. And uh, that story inspired my Christianity with No Jesus segment from the last episode, you know, about the old man who tells you that the things about Jesus can be learned from supernatural sources. But in one sense, born in the second century can allow for Justin's statement in the reading to be literally true. It's kind of like with Tacitus, you know, his passage about Christianity from around 120 AD, I don't consider it genuine, but if it were genuine, it wouldn't even be too much of a problem because there were Christians for the most part in 120 and they could have fed him those legends that he writes about. But the same thing here. Because sharp listeners will note that I'm allowing that the antecedents of Christianity date from the first century, including the Jewish gnosis in which Christ was the Savior, but which would have been totally alien to a reader of the New Testament. Basically, in the mid-first century, a Jewish Gnostic group began spreading its mystical beliefs through the medium of itinerant charismatic prophets. And there were a plethora of tiny cults and little sectarian bands throughout the region who began adopting some or all of those beliefs, or adopting some but rejecting others. And those beliefs themselves were not created by this original sect, but were themselves the product of a lengthy incubation period where they mixed and melded with other ideas. I mean, that's why it's so difficult to ascertain how religions are founded. In many cases, it's like a causal loop diagram. But under this theory, it is of course possible that someone in the year 150 AD, who's 60 or 70 years old, could say that they have been a disciple of Christ since their childhood. And note also that in their childhood, 
the worship in their synagogue may have taken on quite a different form at that early stage than Justin's Christianity of the 150s, but the changes within it would have been so gradual that these people would look back and say like, yeah, I guess we did do the Eucharist 60 years ago as well, or did we? I mean, we had to have done it, right? I mean, certainly we did baptism. I mean, in other words, they transitioned from Jewish Gnostic to Christian in their lifetimes without perceiving much change. So this response to the question of, does this conflict with our theory? I would call this the pragmatic response, basically where we don't see it as an issue because there could have been proto-Christians even a century before Justin. Now our third, and at least for today, final response to this is more speculative. Recall that Justin brings up these older celibate Christians because he's trying to make the point that Christians so closely follow Jesus's commands about not committing adultery and not looking at a woman to lust after her, that they don't even have sex, and in fact, never have. The thing is, in this specific time period, there was a war going on over this very issue in the late 2nd century uh, about these questions of marriage and sex and chastity. On the one side, you have some who advocate for extreme chastity, like Marcion, like Justin's own student, Tatian, who founded an entire sect based on that concept the writer of the Acts of Thecla from this time period, who basically equates Christianity with celibacy. You have the Saturnalian heretics and things like that. But on the other side, you have some who advocate not celibacy, but a sort of a moderate attitude towards sex, more akin to like the Jewish view. Like it needs to be within marriage and it's for procreation. But the extreme virginity, you know, the vol cell, uh, they acknowledge that Christians can do that, but if so, they better not boast about it and consider themselves superior. And that view is stated in writings from this very time period. Things like 1 Timothy, 1 Clement, and uh, you know, the letter of Ignatius to Polycarp, and that more or less became the official Catholic view. But in Justin Martyr's view, Christians, quote, embrace chastity alone. And that, uh, along with this other comment about the 70-year-old virgins, it, it seems innocuous to us. But within Christianity at the time, this statement would have been like, you know how they don't, they say don't discuss politics or religion in a bar? Well, this would have been like someone in a bar politically campaigning to be elected to a church office. I mean, it's like a radioactive statement. It's highly controversial. So the explanation here would be that Justin is again exaggerating for rhetorical effect, but rather than doing so for the purposes of making Christianity look better in the eyes of the Romans, here he's doing it to whack some rival sect. Because it sounds suspiciously like an argument that you would make if someone within your religion was trying to tell you that the concept of celibacy within the religion is newfangled and it wasn't taught in the old traditions. I mean, it has very little relevance for the pagan reader who's like, yeah, I get it, you're chaste, now, you know, leave me alone. But it would be highly relevant in a controversy where the opponents are trying to say, hey, we never taught celibacy in this religion. It's a new innovation that you guys are coming up with. You know, and the counter to that would be, you know, that's not true because I've got senior citizens from every nation over here who have been celibate their whole lives. You know, so there might be more here that we're not seeing as opposed to what we are seeing. So that's the third response, the speculative response, that it's rhetoric for a sectarian purpose. Now, of course, there's always the possibility that the sentence was added by a monk copyist. I mean, we know they valued asceticism, might have been trying to boost Justin's argument a little. Another possibility, Justin could just be mistaken. 
These could have just been older people who were indeed celibate, but converted to Christianity later in life. And in their mind, they were disciples of Christ all along, just waiting for their calling. Celibacy was not unheard of in the Mediterranean world. It was emphasized by the Isis cult and the Orphic mysteries, among others. So it's a possibility that there were people like this. Now, Justin also, throughout this book, does the same thing that the letter to Titus and the letter of Barnabas do, which is he keeps making statements that imply that Christianity was created in his own lifetime. Like he says, we used to be fornicators, but now we embrace chastity. You know, we used to seek wealth, but now we share everything. It's like that could be rhetorical, but there's a certain point in time after the religion has been around long enough that you move on from these figures of speech as we indeed see. But we have now beheld our first vision in the temple of time with our reading that suggested an early origin for Christianity. When we come back, we'll move to the next stage and look at some evidence that suggests otherwise. That the wandering preacher from the church down the street was from a completely separate and independent religion. From the Gospel of Matthew. Truly I say to you, among those born of women there has not been a greater than John the Baptist, but the one who is smaller in the kingdom of the heavens is greater than he. But from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of the heavens is suffering violence, and violent people are snatching it. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you want to receive it, he is Elijah, the one who is going to be coming. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. That was a reading from the Gospel of Matthew. I would put Matthew in the 130s AD, but one of the rules for the Temple of Time is that we uh, assume the traditional Christianity timeline, um, and Matthew is often placed in the 80s AD. Now, as we said, this is our discussion of a quote that implies that Christianity originated later than supposed and that Matthew was written later than supposed. The view of Jesus as a flesh-and-blood man who became an atoning sacrifice was the view of one Christian sect that influenced all its rivals, more in one place and less in another. The records of this sect are preserved partially in the Synoptic Gospels, that is Mark, and the Gospels of Matthew and Luke that directly depend on Mark, but add a few extra sayings of Jesus from what we might call the secondary tradition. The prevailing view of Jesus today is that he was a pious Jew who had some reformist tendencies. He captivated small audiences on a local level, uh, but ran afoul of the Jerusalem authorities and was executed or even lynched during Passover week. But one of the key elements that's said to be known about the historical Jesus is that he was associated in some way with a figure called John the Baptist. 
And this is based largely on the fact that the Gospels depict Jesus as being baptized by John. And the logic of the argument runs that, hey, if Jesus was so special, you know, why would his devoted followers allow him to be depicted as baptized by John? Now, John the Baptist is barely mentioned in other sources. He's mentioned in one of the books of Josephus only once and very briefly. And what looks like a suspect passage, I mean, everyone is all too blithely assumed that this quick hit by Josephus about John the Baptist is wholly genuine. But whether John the Baptist himself was historical should be an open question. I just think that there's not enough information to declare one way or the other. We won't get into the Mandeans today, but sources from the 100s AD speak of a Jewish sect by the name of Hemerobaptists or Day Baptists. And the Christian sources identify them as enemies. They consider them to be a Jewish heresy or school of thought um, on par with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Essenes. It is likely these who honored John the Baptist as their legendary founder. And well into the second century, almost into the third century, the Christians are still tangling with them. The Gospels, as we'll see, are replete with controversy stories about the Christians knocking heads with them. And even the extremely late Acts of the Apostles is still pissed off at them. If the mention of John the Baptist was added to the writings of Josephus, it was most likely added by adherents of this sect, or maybe former adherents of this sect, who converted to Christianity. It's similar to how some Christians somewhere added material about James to the manuscripts of Josephus in the 2nd century. Origin is our evidence of that. So here we're seeing a narrative akin to that of Jesus, in which a later sect reveres a shadowy 1st century figure as its legendary founder. And I think it's pretty damning that, like Jesus, John the Baptist is not referred to at all in the Mishnah, which takes time out to refer to obscure first-century figures like Honi the Circle Maker or whatever. But that aside, the sayings of Jesus from the secondary tradition that are added by Matthew and Luke, and some of which are found in Mark, are traced back to a source called Q. And these quotes are, for the most part, thematically similar. They seem to have come from a group of itinerant prophets and preachers who also saw themselves as wise sages. And the stories about John the Baptist and every mention of John the Baptist that occurs in the Gospels comes from this group and this purported source. Now, this group from its earliest days preached what it called the kingdom of God, a state of being in perfect accordance with the will of God that Jews could enter through repentance expressed physically in baptism and a lifestyle which conformed to the spirit of the law, not so much concerned with the letter of the law. You know, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. And they revered a legendary figure from the past called John the Baptist. Now, what I'm about to say is not part of my actual theory, but the name John the Baptist always struck me as kind of suspicious. Like, it sounds a lot like a group called The Baptist were suddenly forced to pick a name for their legendary founder, and they were just like, I don't know, The Baptist? Well, you can't just call him The Baptist. He needs, like, an actual name. All right, uh, John. You know, he's John the Baptist. His previous name was Untitled Legendary Founder, quote, repository. Um, John was a common name shared by 5% of Jewish men. But back to the show. At some point in this group's history— it began to develop the idea that the kingdom of God could only be realized at the end of the world. It developed an apocalyptic worldview. Because the tone and tenor of these sayings shifts markedly at some point, they start to become more hostile, less ecumenical, more sectarian, much more focused on the eschaton. 
And our theory is that this group prior to 70 AD practiced a sort of spiritualizing Judaism to place a special emphasis on baptism. But after 70 AD, their worldview shifted because it was in that era that their great enemies, the Pharisees, began to become more prominent and began to define Judaism in ways that conflicted with the beliefs of this sect. We know that the apocalyptic movement was raging during this period, the end of the first century, and they were infected by that as well. You know, they now, uh, influenced by the melange of religious ideas floating around at the time, began to preach the coming of the kingdom of God in the wake of the parousia of the heavenly Messiah, the heavenly Christ. And we talked about the heavenly Christ as being a pre-Christian concept that could be found in multiple sources. Even apart from that, there was the theorized um, heavenly Joshua cult that we mentioned but some in this community continued to hold to the reverence of John the Baptist, the community that conjured up a mythology where the heavenly Messiah had appeared on earth as a mortal man in the legendary past. Now, that, by the way, is one area where Mark enthusiastically agrees with the Q community. Like he likes that part of their preaching, but he thinks that there should be much more of an emphasis on how the life and death of Jesus fulfilled prophecy. The prophecy that the Messiah would die in atoning death, like he has Jesus mention it to the disciples three times in almost the same wording. But John the Baptist came to be viewed by some in this community as merely a herald of the Christ figure. And so the feud within this sect between the pro-John faction and the John was just a herald faction would continue for decades. And whoever wrote chapter one of the Gospel of Luke gets an A for effort for trying to definitively tie Jesus and John together, almost like how France and Germany's economies were tied together after World War II so they, they wouldn't go to war. Well, that author tied Jesus and John together in as many ways as he could think of, and he's trying to address this ongoing feud. And so the evidence of this feud can be found in the various layers of editing that we see in the Gospels. In the end, some of the John the Baptist stalwarts did join the apocalyptic sectarians in their new version of the faith, but some of them never gave in. And these became what the later Christians called the Day Baptists, a group that they define as completely within the bounds of Judaism, hardly distinguished from the Pharisees. But when John the Baptist was first imagined to be a herald of the Jesus figure, the sectarians who created this idea meant something very specific. We can still see a refraction of what they originally meant in the canonical gospels themselves. Because when they said that John was a herald of Jesus, they meant that John the Baptist was born and lived and heralded and died before Jesus himself had ever walked the earth. Now, if anyone accepts the view that the historical Jesus was in some way associated with John the Baptist, the narrative about John in the Gospels should give them pause because it is clear that the hypotext or possibly even the intertext that the Gospel writers are using clearly says in no uncertain terms that Jesus was born after John the Baptist died. And it is the contemporaneity of Jesus and John that is actually a later development, an edit by the author of Mark. And it's an edit that throws the entire timeline into confusion. Mark and Matthew both received the John the Baptist stories independently from the tradition, and both of them faithfully record what that tradition had John thunder forth. After me, someone greater is coming. Luke, the latest of the three, and, and the one who was really concerned to give us an early chronology of John and Jesus, a mythical story if there ever was one, he only has John say, someone is coming who is greater. So we have two witnesses against one, that the statement of John in the intertext was, someone is coming after me, i.e., 
after my death. That is the only way such a statement can be received. Now, Luke is so late that he is in some ways uh, similar to a modern Christian apologist. Like, he spends a lot of time and energy harmonizing. He's already seen the problems and the issues that these confusing statements cause. Like, reading Luke is like taking a time machine. It's like reading Mark is like Hill Valley 1985. And like, Luke is the Hill Valley 2015. Because in, in Mark's gospel, you can see the precursors of all the weird items that Luke will end up having to change because of all the issues they've caused in the meantime. Now, Jesus coming after John the Baptist makes perfect sense from an eschatological, prophetic standpoint, but him being smashed together in the same time as John does not make sense. It was done for political reasons. And now I want to point out that I'm aware that a big theme on this show that has really emerged is the idea that like so many things were written to reconcile two fighting sects, or it was like one sect trying to put another in its place. That may seem like my go-to, but really almost every Christian document written before the year 300 has some reference, even a veiled reference, to some other version of Christianity that it disagrees with. It is remarkable. And you see practically nothing like that in Judaism. Like the Mishnah does portray Jewish sects on occasion, and it'll give their opinions. But you get the sense that the writers of that are rather trying to transcend sectarian differences. It's like, here's what the Pharisees said, and then someone else said this. Yeah. Here's what the house of Shammai said, but hold on, here, here's a conflicting opinion from another rabbi. We're not going to tell you which of the two is correct. We're just putting them in front of you to read and think about. Now, polar opposite of Christianity. Like if there was a word called unecumenical, that would be a perfect way to describe early Christianity. John the Baptist was smashed into the time frame that they assigned to the historical Jesus, which was the time of Pilate. In a future episode, we'll discuss why Jesus was put there, but John in the source had lived one generation prior to Jesus. And it seems to have been the author of Mark specifically who was upset about this. And he was the one who smashed these two together in a crossover episode, which is the baptism story. Now, Mark is already on thin ice because we caught him changing his source already with that Passover thing. But let's look at some evidence that John was supposed to have lived prior to Jesus. I just already covered the uh, whole, you know, like after me, someone greater is coming. Um, by the way, the Greek word for after that they're using does mean following behind and coming behind, which fits the intended meaning that John lived and died before Jesus. But as for more evidence, first, there's something called John's disciples, whom the gospel writers consider opponents. But whenever they appear, they never criticize Jesus himself. Instead, they criticize an entity called your learners, that is, Jesus's learners. These passages that have the Christians feuding with John's disciples reflect a time period when these two groups were rivals. And Jesus and John have no interaction after the baptism story, but their learners are constantly clashing with each other. It, it seems unlikely, though, that Jesus or, you know, the historical Jesus would never have had occasion to meet John the Baptist again, considering the fact that the learners of these two are constantly engaging these running street battles, especially if, as we're asked to believe, Jesus was very definitely associated with John the Baptist. I mean, are you sure? Because in evidence, we have one baptism story, which looks suspiciously mythical. And over against that, we have like five stories where the later Christians are depicted as clashing with the later adherents of a John the Baptist sect. I mean, it's very awkward. And the gospel author is highly aware of this, by the way. And that's why he's extremely careful to say that Jesus only began preaching after John was arrested. Like, it's more important for him to establish that time cue than to explain why John the Baptist was arrested or delivered up. Uh, it's funny because 
In fact, he doesn't discuss the circumstances of that arrest for many pages. But if the Gospel of Mark had just left it at that and just said, after John was delivered up, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the Gospel of God and then just like stop right there, didn't mention John the Baptist ever again, I myself would probably believe in historical Jesus. Because in that case, it would be very clear to anyone that Mark's audience would already know the circumstances of John's arrest. Like they're so familiar with it that Mark doesn't even have to elaborate. It's like, as we all know, because it really happened, John the Baptist was arrested and then Jesus's career took off. But unfortunately, Mark screws the pooch on this one because he later feels the need to give us a ripping yarn about John the Baptist's death. It is also one of the most fictional stories ever written. In fact, it's a hard reboot of the book of Esther. Um, like, if, if you tried to tell me that Fievel Goes West had a historical core, I would be more inclined to believe that than this story about John's death. You know, Michael Turton, whom we discussed in episode four, he said that that whole story of John the Baptist, you know, bring me his head on a platter, that whole story is an interpolation. And it's like the theologians had better pray that it is an interpolation because it reveals that Mark's statement about Jesus preaching after John's arrest was put there for apologetic reasons. Because what Mark is doing is trying to make John the Baptist's statement about someone greater coming after me true on a technicality. Like John said, after me, someone greater comes. And, and Mark's like, well, yeah, if you read the fine print, uh, subsection B down here, Jesus did technically come after John. I mean, he started preaching after his arrest. Mark also uses another trick to retcon John the Baptist's declaration, and that's our next piece of evidence that we'll cover right now. In 2 Kings, technically 4 Kings in the Septuagint, there is a line that reads as follows. They said, a hairy man and bound with a leather girdle about his loins, and he said, this is Elijah the Tishbite. Now there is some suggestion that some Jews in the second century believed that Elijah would be the forerunner of the Messiah. And Justin Martyr, at least, assumes that that's actually what all Jews believe. Now, Mark says that that's an opinion of the scribes, which is basically the same thing as saying the second century Jews. But notably, he has Jesus agree with the statement. Jesus believes it too, which implies that Mark believes it. So Mark, therefore, needs to have Elijah appear, and he does by making him literally appear in the transfiguration story. So he's like, okay, Elijah box, checked. Yet in the baptism story, he seems to be toying with this other idea that, well, John the Baptist could also be seen as Elijah. After all, he's a herald of the Messiah. So he gives him Elijah's trademarks. You know, John is said to be clothed in camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist and Elijah in the second Kings passage was hairy and wore the leather belt around his waist, but Luke does not like this for whatever reason and leaves it out. Matthew, in a stunning passage, has Jesus say, if you're willing to accept it, John himself was Elijah who was to come. I think what happened here was that Mark fiddled with the John the Baptist story and gave him some Elijah traits because he was really trying to figure out the best way to put John and Jesus together while still making Jesus come after John. You know, one way was the thing from just before, the, te the technicality, you know, Jesus started his career after John's career ended, but another way is to convert John into an Elijah figure. And in that vein, I think that Mark added this bit about the hair and the belt. I don't think it was in the Q source. I think that Mark was floating this trial balloon to see what would happen. 
And it got to Matthew who saw how lame it was and he added that qualifier, like, if you accept it, John is Elijah. You know, if you're a moron, basically. And uh, speaking of balloons, uh, Robert M. Price always says that this John as Elijah thing went over in Christianity like a lead balloon. Now, a fourth piece of evidence that the chronology of John the Baptist has been messed with. In the Gospel of Mark, there is said to be a rumor going around to the effect that Jesus is John the Baptist raised from the dead. In fact, it is said twice, once by Herod and once in response to a question by Jesus. Who do people say that I am? The first answer out of their mouths, John the Baptist. Now, it goes without saying that these statements imply that John died before Jesus was born. I mean, how could he be the resurrected John if John died during his lifetime? Now, tellingly, the instant that the gospel author mentions this, that some people believe that Jesus is um, John the Baptist, like reanimated, that's when he decides to tell the lengthy story about John's death. But given the fact that the statement that Jesus is the reincarnated John makes no sense, why did he leave those lines in at all? The answer is, the last thing he needs is for people to try to end the sectarian feud with a compromise that Jesus and John are actually the same person, just in different instantiations. Because, I mean, that would fix the problem of the feud, but it would be an extreme solution that would end up compromising the uniqueness of Jesus. It's only a win-win where it needs to be a win-win-win. And as for our fifth and final piece of evidence, the John the Baptist quote from our reading, the most radioactive passage in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is made to say, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and violent men take it by force. Now, for some reason, theologians tend to focus on the second part of this statement rather than the first part. Like, like, what did he mean by violent men take the kingdom of heaven by force? But like, I personally feel that you should be looking not so much at the moat in your eye of the second part of that sentence and so much as the steel girder in your eye of the first part of the sentence. That is a Q quote, and it's a standalone quote. It was uttered at a time when whoever said it or whoever wrote it believed that John the Baptist had died long ago, and he speaks of the days of John the Baptist as if that were a bygone era. In the gospel narrative in which this is placed, John has not even died yet, let alone has there been such a length of time transpired that somebody could say that his days were long ago. Now, this statement, if John the Baptist lived in the 30s AD, what time period should the quote be from in order to make sense? From the days of John the Baptist until now. You know, when is now? How soon is now? Is it 90 AD? Then the days of John the Baptist would have been 60 years ago if he lived in the 30s AD. Uh, maybe this was said in 70 AD. The days of John the Baptist would have been 40 years ago. It could be. Now, John the Baptist has a slight chance of being historical and of living in the 30s AD because that's when Josephus also puts his death. And as pretty much everyone knows, it's not synced with the gospel timeline. Like if John died at the time Josephus says he did, then Jesus could not have died under Pilate, considering that John died before Jesus. Well, like Christian apologists have basically declared that Josephus is not saying that John died that late. But on that question, when is the now in the phrase, the days of John the Baptist until now? The now actually doesn't really matter so much because Matthew himself is writing way later than whoever even came up with the quote. Like that alone to me would put Matthew well into the second century because Matthew doesn't understand the quote. 
That's why in the reading at the top of the segment, I read what came before and after. Matthew created a little John the Baptist section, a little parking lot, and he parked all these John quotes that he took from Q in a straight line right next to each other. Man, because right before this in Matthew, Jesus says, you know, the thing about like, there's no greater SOB than John the Baptist. You know, then he says this quote, the radioactive quote, but then he says, if you receive it, John was Elijah. Like, what is Jesus? Like a Furby or like Teddy Ruxpin or like you just like pull his cord and he just spouts random phrases about John the Baptist. Like, John came neither eating nor drinking. I mean, Matthew does not know what to make of the quote about the days of John the Baptist, which, like I said, puts him way after the guy who said the quote. And to that guy, John's days were already in the distant past. The Gospel of Luke, uh, the theologian Ernst Casamon pointed this out. Luke changes the phrase. He has Jesus say, the law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. And in fact, that's close to what a modern Christian, a harmonizer, uh, that's how they would receive this quote. Like, he's not talking about length of time more so than the eschatological implications. And it's like, well, Matthew certainly didn't see it that way. And Luke was the one who was so upset by it that he altered it. And they both got it from the same source. We know that in that source, it was a standalone quote because Matthew sticks it in the John the Baptist parking lot and Luke sticks it in a completely different context where it's basically a non sequitur. So it was never attached to any story or sermon. And to me, I mean, I know that we're supposed to believe that all this was based on oral tradition, but to me, I don't believe based on the evidence that anyone passed on and remembered these one-off cryptic quotes of the historical Jesus. Like why would they remember this one, for example? and not remember the context that he said it in. But we'll talk a lot about oral tradition in future episodes. But what we found here is a statement that should throw the early origins of Christianity into question in and of itself. We have certainly enough hints that the timeline of John and the timeline of Jesus were artificially merged at some point, and we have reason to believe that that was done by the author of Mark. The community of prophets who developed these stories believe that John lived at least one generation prior to Jesus coming in. I would estimate that these stories, the Q sayings, the miracle worker pericopes, these were composed between 95 and 115 AD, such that Matthew, writing as I believe in the 130s, is given a long enough time for the community to forget the original meaning of a quote that placed the time of John in the distant past. If we are to believe that there was a historical Jesus and a historical John and that these both died in the 30s AD and therefore they were contemporaries, then we would have to explain why only the controversy stories about their later adherents are represented. Why are we hearing rumors that Jesus is the reincarnated John? Why is John spoken of as a long departed past figure? Why is there confusion over whether he's a stand in for Elijah? Why does it seem like the gospel authors are trying to qualify John's statement that after him, someone greater will come? If these questions need to be answered, and if all this happened in the 30s AD, then this confusing mishmash of literary tropes and conflicts and temporal paradoxes, I think everyone should agree that all this had to have been written down in a time in which not only were Jesus and John not living, which is obvious, but even their immediate followers were no longer living. And remember, Acts of the Apostles, if we want to believe that that is based on some historical core, well, that book depicts these apostles living well into the 60s at least. And they all still supposedly have living memories of John the Baptist. Remember that Acts was more or less written by the same author as Luke. It's a continuation of his story. John the Baptist is just as much in mind in Acts as in the Gospels. So I think that if there was a historical Jesus, Mark would have had to have been written at least 90 AD 
for any of this to make sense. And that is severely pushing it. 100 sounds more likely. And that's if a historical Jesus is in the picture. I put Mark at 120 with a mythical Jesus, as we recall from episode four. So with all we've considered, think about the implications that this problem, this vision we have witnessed in the temple of time, think about what implications it has for the traditional timeline of Christianity. Today, we introduced our Temple of Time concept with its vision of a first century Christianity, followed by a vision of a second century Christianity. And we moved a bit outside of what we were able to cover in the New Testament shows. We looked at a reading from Justin that implied that Christianity arose in the first century, and then a reading from the Gospels that implied a much later origin, which is notable in itself, because you would think that the Justin reading would imply the late origin, not the Gospel reading. We hope to continue with our New Testament journey next time, part three of Galatians. But the readings today have shown that even the short little innocuous statements in these writings matter, and they can't be blithely accepted at face value. There are a few alternate ways of viewing the Justin statement, although indeed, we can also take it at face value with minimal difficulties. Uh, We could take it straight. Um, I think it's much harder for an apologist to explain the John the Baptist material, though. It creates an intractable problem for them Too many unanswered questions. And if you address one, then another one pops up somewhere else. It's like when he was trying to stop the dam from leaking in a Vegas vacation. And that's what I asked us to consider at the beginning. What position would we prefer to be in? Believing that Christianity originated early, yet being confronted by possible evidence that it arose later. Or believing that it arose later, but having possible evidence that it came earlier. Now, I ask this because... Our instinct is to say that both of those scenarios are equally difficult, but I hope that this show today has demonstrated that it's that first scenario, the believing that Christianity originated early, but having evidence that suggests otherwise, that is the less desirable, because it leaves very little room to maneuver. Thank you for listening. Join us next time. This criticism is ended. Go in peace. Stories of mythology do you think of as historical reality?